Tonight is Wednesday, March 2nd. The title of tonight's message is Critical Mass. Um, I've never done uh, PowerPoint. I still have it. My wife did that for me. <laughs> but we're going to talk about, uh, in the beginning, uh, uh, maybe, some, maybe for some of y'all, maybe some complex thoughts or ideas, and I thought it would just be helpful to have some words on the screen. And so we'll get right into it. Critical mass. I feel like uh, just in preparing for this message and trying to get the mind of God and what He's saying, uh, not just in this hour, but what He's saying here in this city and this church, uh, I feel like this is a pertinent message for you guys and me. Uh, So I want to jump right into it. Critical mass. We're just going to run over just a few thoughts and ideas. Nuclear physics, all right? Can we just come up with that? Can we just come up with the easiest thing to talk about tonight, and let's just dive right in. Uh, I know Robert was studying to, uh, to be a, a, a rocket scientist, I think, is what he was doing, right? Uh, rocket scientist, astronaut. Right. See, there you go. Uh, so you'll, you'll, you'll track with me just fine. Uh, but I'm not a rocket scientist. I might be a little technically inclined at times, but anyway, nuclear physics we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, just the whole time we're talking, just be thinking critical mass, critical mass, critical mass. That's why we have the name critical mass. Uh, simply, let's just think nuclear bombs. It's fission. It's the act of atoms being split and incredible amounts of energy being given off. So, uh, point one, we know that uh, this atom it has a nucleus, it's split. And the neat thing is, when this atom is being split... It gives off neutrons. The act of these neutrons being split and getting excited and being propelled away from the the center of this nucleus, it hits other atoms, right? And guess what it does? That neutron hits another atom. That atom splits and it releases neutrons. It hits other atoms and they split. It's a chain reaction. What's really neat about this fission is that it's a two-for-one deal. One atom splits and releases multiple neutrons, but each neutron in turn splits two atoms. So it's exponentially more powerful than what you started with. Point three, one impact that starts this chain event can begin a self-sustaining chain reaction that we know releases an incredible amount of energy. We think, you know, fission, we always think bombs. I, I do anyway. I, I'm a little bit of a pyrotechnic, uh, you know, so I always think explosions. But, you know, but that's not all that we use fission for. You know, nuclear power is fission. It's a controlled, you know, process uh, they have in a controlled environment. So there's not a huge explosion. It's more contained. Uh, I want to run through the points uh, of, of this reaction and just remember, just track with me that we're going somewhere there tonight. We got a place we're going to land tonight. Uh, some, some really important points of this fission. A, it's required to have this unique element. It's not something uh, super common. Uh, it starts with uranium. And the, the thing that I take away from just Wikipedia and studying some of this stuff, this thing... Uh, this element, uranium, it has to be refined in an incredible way. And we'll get into that more later. And C, it must have the right amount, 
this ingredient that's required in this uh, fission process, you've got to have the right amount of this ingredient, uranium. And that's the title of our message, this right amount of this ingredient is what we call critical mass. D, an outside force must act on it. E, it takes large amounts of energy to start this process. So let me just recap. So in this process of fission, you've got to have a core. It's made up of uranium, right? It's a, a very highly processed and rich ingredient at this core. It requires uh, just the right amount of mass. You've got to have just the right amount. It's, it's, it's very exact. It's not just some loose thing. You just throw a glob together. No, it's not that way at all. It requires a very exact number to start this. Uh, D, very important. It requires an outside force acting on it. It doesn't just blow up on its own. It doesn't just start this process on its own. It requires something outside acting, and it takes a lot of force acting on it, okay? Uh, Put the definition of critical mass up there just so that we all track clearly with this, the minimum amount of reactive material required to sustain a reaction. So basically, we're talking about the amount of substance that is required to start this event. That's what we're talking about tonight, critical mass. And it's also important just to know how important that the right amount is. I can't emphasize tonight how important it is. If if the word critical doesn't get your attention. You know, I work for a company that's called Critical Electric, and uh, a lot of times, not everything I do is critical, uh, <laughs> but uh, there are certain connotations when you say critical. It's important. It's imperative. Uh, there is also uh, three other words that are related to this. Uh, one of them is subcritical mass. So you've got to have the right ingredient for this thing to go off. Well, guess what? If you don't have enough of this ingredient, it's subcritical. It's not enough to do what we want it to do. If you don't have enough, it's no good. You've got to have the right amount. There's a thing of having too much of this thing. It's called supercritical mass, if you can imagine that, right? And then we, let me tell you the difference uh, of what we're talking about here. So if you don't have enough of something, then nothing happens. That, that's pretty obvious. But if you have too much of something... Too much of this incredible, powerful stuff, guess what? It just blows up. You start this reaction, and it doesn't stop. It continues in an incredible method that you have this huge explosion. We know it's a nuclear uh, explosion, and we've seen you know, pictures and films you know, from the war. Supercritical mass. But you know what I'm talking about tonight? Something very specific. We're talking about critical mass. We're talking about right in the middle of those two things. Critical mass, what it does, it causes a self-sustained reaction that lasts for a long time. It's not a fizzle in the pan. It's not a super heated event that happens very quickly in a few seconds. I'm talking about a sustained reaction that can go the distance. That's what we're talking about with this critical mass. So... At this point, I'm sure you're, you're asking, well, how does that relate to me? What, what, what does this have to do with what God is saying to this church? That's a good question. <laughs> the word is relevant tonight because I believe that God is trying to speak a specific message to us as a body. And it relates directly to this critical mass. 
let's just get, I want to get right into the word from here. I want to look at uh, first, first Peter 2 5. Just be thinking critical mass all the time we're going. First Peter 2 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We use this passage a lot. This is not an unfamiliar passage to us, but I want to build tonight. It's obvious that God says that we, His people, we're the building blocks of the kingdom. We're the raw ingredients of what God is doing. Right? We all agree on that. I'm going to take it one step further. I'm going to say that as Christians, as believers, as this church, that we are that critical mass. We're that raw ingredient that makes up what could be critical mass. So in my analogy, you, the people of God, you're the core. That's what the critical mass is. The center of this event is the core, and that's what you are tonight. And what we're going to look at, we're going to look at through the scripture that in this critical mass, how important the exact number is. It requires an exact precise number. Uh, this, this critical mass has to have the, the, the right amount. It has to be placed in just the right way. And then it has to be uh, arranged in a certain order. Everything has to follow just right for it to happen. Okay? If anything's out of line, you just have a little bitty explosion and not what we're looking for. Uh, I want to look at uh, Genesis eighteen twenty three. Genesis eighteen twenty three. Then Abraham approached him and he said. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And I, I, I mean, I'll preface just because I can. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of scriptures. I'm going to try to read through them as quick as I can. But we know that uh, in this instance, uh, God has showed up on the scene. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to destroy the city. He goes and reveals his plan to his man, Abraham. Abraham, being the great mediator that he is, he begins to plead with God for those souls. And this is that conversation. Abraham says, after he finds out God's going to destroy this wicked city, he says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? We sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Verse 26, the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, What if only 40 are found there? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I won't do it if I find 30 there. 
Abraham said, Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 could be found there? God answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. This is an incredible passage. But in this passage, it's real easy to understand that there was an exact number that made the difference for God. God said he wouldn't destroy that city for 50 righteous persons. God was going to alter the very... He had plans and he was going to alter his plans for, for, for 50 people. For 50 people. Abraham got them down less and less. 10 people. All God required was 10 people in a whole city. Actually, we know Sodom and Gomorrah was actually a collection of two cities. 10 people. That's all he required. We're talking about critical mass. We're talking about a very specific number. In this particular instance, the critical mass could have been these 10 people because God was going to change the very plans that he had intended to do. He was going to do something incredible and he was going to spare both of these cities for 10 people. But we know because we've all read this story that it doesn't happen. He does destroy the city because there's not 10 people to be found. Critical mass. The, the next instance that I found, and just so you know, that it, it's, it was not hard in any way to find uh, uh, instances of the point I'm trying to convey to you tonight because it's all over the Scripture. Uh, you know, when, when, a, when a nuclear explosion happens, everyone notices it. Uh, we all see the aftermath. We see the uh, after effects. And it's not real easy. Uh, to, it's not hard at all to say hey, something just happened there. We don't know exactly what, but something incredible just went on right there. So in the scriptures, it's not hard. You know, I, I look and, and see all these incredible events, you know, Genesis through uh, the very end, you know, of, of Revelation. We see incredible acts and moves of God. And so all I did was pick a few select ones. It, it, it's, it's many and many. I just look at something incredible and I go back and, well, what happened? And I, I can always find there was a specific thing that happened that spurred and started this reaction. And the reaction was God moving on behalf of his people. Uh, in Judges 7, we have the story of Gideon. We'll start reading in, in uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Gideon, what a story. What an amazing story. Uh, one point I want you to take away from that first passage with uh, the conversation that Abraham had with God. God initially had the requirement at 50 people. At the end of the conversation, it was 10 people. It's funny how sometimes what God needs from us is always less than sometimes what we realize. You know, 50 people was the requirement to save that city. Then it became 10. Critical mass, sometimes, for me or you, I don't know, sometimes it just seems so, it's, it's not even attainable, you know. The, this, this thing that we're trying to achieve here in this church, this, this, we're trying to... Uh, have this, this stride that we hit. We're trying to find, uh, to be in the perfect you know, center of God's will. We, we want revival. We want outpourings. We, we desire all these incredible things. And sometimes it, it, it's like it's, it's, it's not even tangible. It's like it's just over there. We hear about uh, glimmers of, of revival and, and God's doing this over there. But here, 
you know, the, the point I want you to understand is that it's, it's, it's not something that is, is unreachable. It, it's something not beyond us, but it's something right in front of us. And I just want you to get a hold of this tonight. Uh, Judges 7.1. Early in the morning, Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have, let me, and again, I'll preface just, just in case someone is not familiar with this story. We, we know that Gideon is in the middle of a, of a fierce battle with the Midianites. They're a terrible enemy. Uh, we know that God sends an angel uh, to Gideon. Uh, he announces his arrival to Gideon, and he calls Gideon mighty warrior. And we know uh, Gideon did not feel that, and he did not identify with that in any way. He, he, he went on to say that he was the, the smallest, the least, and, 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 and it wasn't going to be him. And, uh, and so this angel went on to tell him that he was the one that God chose to deliver his people. And so... Uh, so of course, any general or any uh, mighty fighting man, they do what they do. They they go and get all the guys together and, and let's let's do this thing. I mean, that's right. That's when you're in war and 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 you got a, a formidable enemy. You go get all, all the guns you got. And and in this church, it might be a lot. You know, we might really, you know, we might you know really stir some fear in in uh, you know certain enemies. Uh, so he does that. Gideon musters thirty two thousand men. Okay, so that's where we're at. So he takes these 32,000 men and they're going to mount an offense against the Midianites. So we'll pick up in Judges 7-2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into into your hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, and that left 10,000. That, that was a serious, uh, I mean, they just cut their troops drastically. Judges 7, 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And then the Lord said to him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouth. All the rest go down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men that that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go and each to his place. And we know how that ends. God takes those three hundred men and they, they rout the Midianite army. And they do it in an incredible way. You can read it in Judges 7. But the point here is that God required a, a very specific number. He had a very specific idea, a plan. He was enacting uh, this, this incredible plan to redeem his people, to, uh, to, uh, to set them free from the oppressor. But the thing is that God didn't need 32,000 men. He only needed 300. He went through a, a selection, a, a process. Very, I mean, he, he, he says he's going to handpick those that he wanted, that he needed. So there's a, a very selective process that God uses to wean out those that are to be part of the core and those are that just 
destined for something else. I want to turn to Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. And we understand Ezra and Nehemiah, they both, uh, they both chronicle the, uh, the people of God are, are captured and, and held captive by Babylon. These two books, they chronicle them coming back, coming back to Jerusalem. There's an initial group that comes and they all come back to restore the city. They come back to rebuild the temple. They come back to rebuild the wall. And you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But Ezra, Ezra uh, 2.1 says, Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own. In company was Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misbar, Bigvay, Rehum, and Banah. The verses continue. It goes on for 50 verses and it names. It's a list of all the names and tribes of everyone that came. They responded. They came back out of captivity and they were coming back to their homeland. And then in verse 64, after listing all these names. It was a, it was a, a long list of, of detailed names and tribes. It says, in summation, it says, the whole company numbered 42,360, besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants, and they also had 200 men and women singers. So the grand total was 49,897 people that God needed for the work back in Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the, the, the temple, to lay the foundation, to go and, and, and rebuild the walls. He needed, in his great scheme, in his great plan, and in, in all of his orchestrating, he had a number of people that it took to, to achieve that, that incredible goal. And that brings us to, I would say, the greatest, the greatest passage that I think that expounds and it, it, it demonstrates the power of this critical mass, what having just the right amount of people at the right time with God acting on this group, what incredible things can happen out of it, the incredible force that can come out of that. Acts chapter 2, right? Pentecost. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This, this would be uh, ground zero, if you would. In Acts 1.15, it 
prefaces by saying Peter speaking, and he numbers the group 120. 120 believers were in that upper room. So there was a, a very specific number of people that God used as a catalyst to begin revival, to begin to preach the word. We know from this moment onward, it ushered in a time of incredible miracles, powerful preaching. We see out of these ingredients, I mean, rapid explosion in the church. I mean, growth that was unheard of, just, just, the, just right behind this, you know, Peter's preaching, and he's preaching, I mean, you know, coming out of, you know, uh, denying Christ, and then Pentecost happens, and then he preaches with such power and conviction that 3,000 men are just convicted and struck through the heart, and they repent, and they're, they find salvation. 3,000 men were added to their numbers in one day. You know, I think of, you know, critical mass because that's all my mind's been thinking about. You know, I'm driving down the road and because that's what I feel like the Lord is saying here. There's an idea of critical mass and there's an idea behind that that he wants us to understand. Now, look at the 12 disciples. I mean, it doesn't get any. I can't think of a better example, you know, 12 men, you know. Twelve men, we hear, I say it, and I, I've heard it said all the time, you know, twelve men turned the world upside down, and it's true, they did. But they didn't do it alone. You know, they started with twelve, but then the twelve came twenty-four, it became forty-eight, it grew, it compounded, and so they started it, but it continued exponentially. So for, in order, you know, for change to happen... Yeah, it starts with a, a core. Yeah, there's going to be a, a, a group of people that we can say, hey, this was a critical mass. This was the beginning of something incredible. But the idea behind this, this critical mass is that it doesn't stop there. It goes outward. It goes on, and it adds, and it gets stronger, faster. So it doesn't depend on the very beginning. It depends on it continuing I thought of Romans 11.25. And I'm trying to convey some thoughts to this church tonight. Romans 11.25 says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. The reason I mention that is because, I mean, clearly God has a plan. God is working and He is moving and He is orchestrating things that we don't even fully grasp at times. And in this passage, we understand that He's saying, for my will to be performed, I've got a certain number that have to be, they have to be ushered in into my kingdom. There are certain pieces that have to fall into place. So when I think about the message that the Lord is saying tonight, it's, it, it's, it's this. It's just this, this critical mass that we're talking about. We're just talking about the right ingredients. We're talking about being arranged in just the right order. It's about being collected in such a way that we become useful in the master's hands. 
We know that if everything happens in, in just the right way, in the way that God is designed, He's got a plan that He's trying to unfold right here in Sugarland. He's going to use this church as the catalyst. He's trying to bring a body to be a part of that plan. I feel like this body is, is, it is that core. It is ground zero. It is that critical mass. But in order to truly achieve that critical mass, we've got to have everything in the right place. Everything has to be uh, done in the right way. The right people collectively have to be here. And what I, and as I'm praying and, and just really trying to dissect what, what the Lord is saying, the, the word that, that I, I kept hearing was this, is that the, the, where I'm going with this is, is this. Critical mass is the goal because critical mass is whenever a huge event happens, critical mass is that moment right before. Eric, here in more recent sermons, I've heard him talk about uh, you know, miracles, things that we're just diligently praying for. We, we need breakthroughs. And he says, well, you know, what, if, what if you're right there at that breakthrough? What if you're right there at your miracle and then you stop, you give up? And see, I feel like the Lord is saying, in, in, in this body, in this church, we're not at that critical mass. You know, I, I wish I could say, hey, you know, th- th- this is it. But I feel like the Lord is saying, no, this is not it. He's saying, there's more. There's more. There's more. And I feel like the Lord is saying, he doesn't have everyone here that he needs. All the, the, the people are not here yet. Matthew 9.37 This is Jesus speaking. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When I first really understood this, because sometimes I just read and things just kind of go right over me sometimes. You know, because... I feel like my calling in life has always been an evangelist. I have an evangelistic heart. And along those lines, you know, my tendency is, is just, let's just, let's just pray for the lost. Let's just, let's just pray that God will bring in the lost. And, you know, we just need more uh, believers and we just need all this stuff. But see, that's not what God instructs us to do. And so it's just funny how, <laughs> you know, sometimes what makes sense and what God does, sometimes they don't meet. Because uh, what Jesus says, he's saying, he's, he says, don't pray for the lost. Not that we shouldn't, but in this instance, he's saying that we're to pray for workers. Amen. He's saying that the harvest is ripe. The people, I mean, he's working. He, he's already going to cause them to come in. He needs workers to go out there and bring them in. You know, he's going to do the work. We just got to go out there and, and get them in. Amen. And so it's so interesting that, that he says that. So what God is saying is, in this, in this body, in this church, in this moment, he's saying he desires more workers in this church. Amen. The work that he has for us is not complete. He, he desires to have more workers to do the work. And as I'm praying and, and, and working through this message, you know, the obvious question is, well, how do we, how do we get to that point? Because obviously we want, we want to fulfill our mission you know, we want to do uh, everything, you know, as God is calling us to do. I, I've never in my life been around a, a, just believers and, and a church that, that work as hard as this 
church. LCMF, I mean, just blows me away. You know, uh, moving time. I, it just, you know, that is just crazy. The whole church would come and help someone move. You know, um, so the idea is not that anything is wrong. Everything is, is, is on track. You know, this is what I feel like because things are going so well. Yeah, there's bumps and, and there's scrapes and there's, you know, things we got to, you know, correct and handle up along the time, you know. But overall, you know, God is doing some incredible things in our midst right now. He really is. And it's real easy to get complacent and think, well, this is it. You know, we're, we're, we're in the midst of a revival and, and this is it. But God is dropping him heart and saying, no, tell him there's more. There's more. Don't, don't stop. Don't relax. Don't let up. I need more people to perform my will here. And so that's like, wow, okay, I'm going to tell him, God. So I come up with two things as I'm praying. And God is, is speaking to me. And he says two things. Two elements to add the right people, the right amount, the right quantity, the right ingredients here that God needs. The core must be pure and the the core must be broken. I'm going to expound on that some more. I'm going to say this. Purity will catch the attention of the lost and brokenness will win the lost. Purity. Justin did such a good job on Sunday. Secret holiness. Because that's really what, that's what we're, that's what, that's, that's what I'm saying right now. This purity. You know, we think of, you know, we're tracking with this critical mass, you know, for this incredible event to take place. You know, I mean, yeah, it's got to have uranium. Yeah, it's got to have this certain ingredient acted upon in a certain way and, and everything, but you know, the truth of the matter is this: is uranium. It is unique and it is somewhat rare, but it's not that rare. You know, uh, here in the U.S., uh, it's like it's like five million tons. Are you know they mine? I think it's every year like around five million tons here in the U.S., like in Utah or something. Worldwide, it's like billions of tons of uranium. So it's not you know it is unique and it has certain properties. Uh, but it's not that rare. It's, it's pretty readily available. What makes uranium in this instance different, see, because when you find it naturally in its natural state, you know, it's in the dirt. It's an ore. And it's mixed in with a bunch of dirt and trash. Uh, most of the ore, as I'm reading, I'm just, you know, I'm just looking in, you know, Wikipedia and different things because I, I don't, you know, I feel like the Lord has told me to mine right here, and I'm trying to figure out what, what all this means. But ore in its natural state, it's like 90% impurities. It's like crazy. It takes, I mean, incredible, massive amounts of this raw material to get just these the smallest little bits of this refined, enriched uh, material that they need. So purity is so important. But I'm not going to try to put this where it's unattainable. See, because when I came to the Lord, you want to talk about it, I might have been 99% impure. I know most of y'all are probably only 90%, but I was, I was a little bit worse than some of y'all. But there's this refining nature that God begins to work in us. He 
He applies heat and pressure. You know, in this whole uranium, you know, thought, you know, they, they have these special processes. Uh, I think it's a centrifuge that they use. And uh, they spin this stuff and they spin it. And you know what the crazy thing is? You know how long it takes them to do this? You know, I, I know it's not so relevant now, but, you know, it was maybe last year, you know, this Iran thing, you know, they're, they're on track to make this bomb. And, and, and uh, the reason most people aren't too, too worried about it because they realize how long it takes. You know, they're, they're over there spinning their centrifuges right now. They got thousands of them just spinning and enriching this uranium. But it takes so long. It takes, it's, very, it's a very, very tedious process to purify this ore. It, they're, they're projecting years. It'll take them years to produce just this little bit of, uh, amount of material that, that, that would be viable for some kind of nuclear bomb. So most of uh, the scientists are like, you know, they're not too concerned about it. We have a few years. So I guess in a few years, you know, I guess they might be more worried about it. <laughs> but the idea... This process is tedious. It's a very tedious process that God goes through to refine his saints. We were just ore when he found us, full of impurities, but in his goodness and sovereign grace, he cleans us up, sets our feet on right footing with himself, brings us into right standing, and he enacts us into his plans. What an incredible thing. Thinking about purity, I just, you know, Justin's message, I mean, what a, what a dead, spot-on message. I picked out, and there's, you know, any number of scriptures, but I don't know why the Lord had me read this one, but it's John twelve three. This is just a little, little passage about a woman named Mary. She was so in love with Jesus. John twelve three says that then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And then it says the most amazing thing. It says the the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There's something about purity. In this passage, we know that it, it has this powerful effect on the whole environment. She takes this, this jar of, of, of pure. It's something that's pure. It's expensive. It took time to refine it and, and dip out the... the, the the trash and the dirt that was in there. It went through a process. And when it was spilled out, it was a, a wonderful fragrance. It was an aroma that captivated the people that were there. Justin talks about secret holiness. We're to be set apart, uncommon. The reason why I'm talking about this is because I'm telling you, Lord said, that's how you win the lost. Because if we're common, if we're just like every other person, every other believer, every other religion, there's no desire. There's, 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 we're a dime a dozen if we're just like everyone else. There's, there's nothing that separates us. I think a few years ago, uh, I was in, in D.C. and we, we uh, hit some museums and 
I don't even remember. It was one of the Smithsonian's. It was maybe the natural history. I don't know. Susan could tell you. But they had the Hope Diamond right there. And, and, and you're there and you're just like, ooh, ah. <laughs> and it's like, why? You know, why? Well, for one, it, it, it's, it's one of the most desirable jewels in existence. One, because it's this rare color, blue, very, very rare. It's huge. It's, it's like, I don't know, 45 carats, I think I, I read. Huge. And then what really adds to it is its providence. It was belonged by kings. And this thing passed through, through hands that were of majesty. I mean, and there it is. You know, we're standing there and we're just like, wow, cool. Something rare, it'll always get people's attention. It'll always get other people's attention. You want to win the lost? Man, you just set yourself apart. You dedicate yourself to him. In the workplace, don't be like everybody else. When you're cleaning the house, don't clean the house like everybody else. I was trying to convey to my wife, she's telling me, we just want to do more in the kingdom. We want to do more. We want to have more fruit. My wife sometimes is like, well, I'm just here at the house. What can I do? And so, well, you're raising our children, so that's kind of important, you know. But you know what? She has an incredible family. She has a bunch of sisters, and they're always calling her. She, she's, she's kind of like the, kind of the, the even keel of, of, of all the sisters. And, and so when one of them's mad or fighting, they always call her. Always call her. Gonna, you know, I'm going to bend her ear and try to... And I said, there's your ministry right there. There's your ministry. And, 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 it's, and it's been wonderful to watch her uh, grow in, in that. No matter where you're at, set yourself apart. Amen. It'll always catch the attention of the people around you. Don't be like everybody else. I think of Brent Vincent's message. What a great message. So inspiring. When I hear stuff like that, I just want to quit my job and just go somewhere, you know? I mean, really. I, I don't know that he's called me to do that, but that's when I hear stuff like that, it's like, man, that is so exciting, even just to be a part of that. And then to listen to and, and him tell that, we know. We all are like, yes, you were born for that. You know, you were, you were designed to be there and go do those things. We know that God's going to be with him. But you remember he said it took him 14 years. 14 years. You know, we're in a, you know, a microwave society, you know. I sit in the drive-thru and I've been there for more than two minutes. I'm like, hurry up. Let's go. You know, we want everything now. Purity and holiness takes time. You know. You know, when Brent's preaching and this time thing, I, I went back uh, when I think I was 14 or 15 years old. So we're talking, you know, 25 plus years ago. But I was at a church camp and uh, I got a prophecy. The, uh, the prophecy, I don't remember every word, but I remember that he said that, uh, you know, that I was going to impact multitudes of people for Christ. And, um, and, and, you know, after that, you know, somewhere along the way, I got, you know, sidetracked and 
got off from where I should have been heading. And I wasted a lot of time. But I've never forgotten that prophecy. And in all of those circumstances and in and, 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 and God's great wisdom and mercy in my life, it's just been, it's just been refining. You know, my, my refining, he's, he's spent 14 years. I, I wasted 10, so, you know, it's taken a lot, a lot longer for me. And so when I speak to young people, I speak to my son, I, you know, my heart is don't let it take 25 years, you know. Don't let it take 25 years. The process might take five years. I was thinking of uh, when I'm studying stuff, the Manhattan Project, you know, when we developed those nuclear weapons, you know, it took like four or five years, and and it it was a long process to develop just a a couple of, uh, you know, those nuclear bombs. So, yeah, it's a lengthy process, but don't drag it out. You know, young people, my heart is is for y'all just to, to know him all the days of your life. I just could imagine, what if I was on fire and had dedicated myself like I am now 25 years ago? Man, where, where could I be? What, what could I be doing? You know, uh, today, I, I don't live in regret. I just make up for all the lost time that I can. So I don't live in regret, but I just wonder if these young people, if they would just set themselves apart today, dedicate themselves today, and just always live in his kingdom, live with his eyes, do the things he wants them to do. No wasted time. What, what an incredible generation that it could be. Brokenness. I'll just say this. When I talk about brokenness, there's all sorts of thoughts and ideas and connotations that come to one's mind. But I'm talking about a, a very, very specific type of brokenness. When I was uh, putting this all together, uh, the Lord reminded me of a, of, a, of a message that Zeke preached. I think it was like three or four years ago. It was on the other side. Anyway, the title of the message, it, it was, he named it kind of funny. It was, uh, I know why he named it, but it wasn't really the heart of what he was saying. The, the message, it was titled, uh, Between the Porch and the Altar. But if I could have named it, it would have been brokenness for the lost. This message that Zeke preached, it wasn't even a long message. He got right in and just started pouring his heart out to us. And what he was conveying was this. And, if he, and, and what, what was happening at that time, God had put this idea, it was a God idea of you know, ministering in the third ward, and, and he, he had gotten uh, another minister, had given him a tent, and he was going to go set this tent up, and he was going to go uh, do this campaign. And you know what God told him? He says, you don't set up a tent and make one move until you've prayed and you wept and you have mourned for those souls for 30 days. And it kind of s- sent Zeke into a tailspin because he's like, I mean, he was ready to move. And then it was like, you know, the Lord was like, no, no. Brokenness for the lost, that's exactly what we're talking about tonight. Brokenness for lost. I'm reminded of a story Justin told to me. And he can correct me and, and give you all the details. I, I just remember just the, the basics of it. It was uh, General uh, William Booth 
began the, the Salvation Army, uh, an incredible work. Uh, but he had sent out some missionaries. I don't even remember where they went, but they went out there uh, with the blessing uh, of his organization and the church, and they worked and toiled for two years. No results, no fruit. They wrote a letter back home, and basically what they were wanting to do, they wanted, they wanted his blessing to come back home. We've tried. We've done everything we could. The people are unwilling. We're not able to win any converts. Can we please come back home? William Booth sent a letter, and it had two words on it. And it said, try tears. Try tears. That letter, it hit its mark, and they begin to weep and mourn for the lost. I think of Nehemiah, when word had gotten to him, and he realized the ruin of his city, the ruin of the temple. The walls were broken down, and the scripture says he wept for days. He was brokenhearted. The Lord is saying, if we're going to win the lost, we've got to be broken for the lost. And I'm the first to admit, I'm, I, I think, uh, you know, the Lord has called me to be an evangelist to win the lost. And that was the first thing that here, here in more recent times that he's dealing with me about, you're never going to win anybody unless you're broken for, if you're broken for their souls, then you might win them. You've got to be broken. Hudson Taylor, one of the great missionaries to China, he prayed these words. He told God, give me souls or give me death. I'm not there, but I want to be. Just being honest with you tonight, and I, I think that's what God is saying. There must be a purity. There must be a set-apartness. There must be a distinction between us and the world. There has to be. It's the only way that this thing's going to happen. And we've got to weep and mourn for the souls of the lost. Good messages don't cut it. Five-point doctrines don't cut it. Clever speeches don't quite cut it. Until we've wept, until we've mourned, that's going to be the catalyst that's going to cause God to bring the people in that we need. I just want to summarize tonight. Number one, God desires a specific number of His people, us, the core, to align themselves with His will. He's looking for a certain number, and we're not there. He wants more workers. He needs more. That's what He's saying. He's saying His core, His body, we must be pure and broken. And He assures us that He wants and He desires to work and to pour into us a fresh outpouring. He desires it. For the core 
acting under God, the catalyst, this outpouring, we will begin to move outward. That's what's so neat about this fission thing. Fission, it's the breaking. It's the breaking. The act of this breaking, it calls an outward movement. God pours in. We've got to be pure. Yeah, we're going to get broken, but guess what happens? Begin to affect other people. Point five. We begin a chain reaction. As this thing moves outward, it's like a ripple in the water. A rock is thrown, and it just moves outward in an ever-increasing radius. That's what God wants to do here. Point seven. When all these things are met, we've reached critical mass. We know that just like in the book of Acts, in the same way, God acting in that upper room, the effect that it had is that it set their hearts ablaze. Peter preached like he had never preached in his life. The fruit that came out of Pentecost We're reaping the benefits of that today. God is saying He wants to do more. He desires to do more. Point seven, obviously, is revival. That's that's really what we want. We don't want just a week-long revival. We don't want a, a revival until the pastor's caught in sin. We want a revival that'll carry on And go the distance. I believe what God is saying that if we can just catch the vision and realize that this is not it. There's more. There's greater. God wants to do more. He desires to have more people in here working for Him for His purposes. 